Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. And welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. This week, as always, we've got our regular crew. I'm joined by Sam Schultz. Hello. Sam, what's your tagline? Emergency mustard supply. Mm, That's good to have one of those. We're also joined by Stefan Chin. Hi. What's your tagline? Oh, up, up, and away. Wee, wee, wee. Sari Riley is also here. Yep, I'm here. All right. What's your tagline? Easy, breezy, and very queasy. And I'm Hank Green. My tagline is vibrating. Every week on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up and amaze and delight each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, and we're playing for Hank Bucks. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but judging by previous conversations, we won't be good at that. So, if the rest of the team deems the tangent unworthy, we will force you to give up one of your Hank Bucks. Now, as always, we introduce this week's science topic with the traditional science poem. This week from me. In July of 1969, the numbers counted down. A trio of historic dudes then lifted off the ground to sky to space to land again upon another world. A treasure of geology, Earth's history unfurled. Two men stepped upon the land, their feet sunk in the dust. Fighter pilots, both of them, one kneel, the other buzz. The rocks they tread upon that day were foreign in some ways, and others, they were part of us, if you look back a ways. The moon was once the Earth, the Earth was once the moon, 
To bridge that gap, life evolved from algae to baboons. It took four billion years to cross that ocean once again, but with will and ingenuity, we did that thing, my friends. Are you sure? (laughs) 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 So the topic this week is Apollo, celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. Sari, what is Apollo besides a god? (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's a space program that had... I feel like you're better equipped to define this than I am, so I didn't look it up. <laughs> but it's the space program that was like the big space race thing that happened where yeah. we made the push to put a man on the moon. And so it was all the missions leading up to that, mm-hmm. all the manned space flights that were leading up to that, yep. and the eventual four landings? Oh, no. More? Six, Six landings, Six? I think. Okay. So it was everything after Apollo 11 landed on the moon? Except for 13. It's 11, 12, 14, 15, 16? And 17. Oh. I didn't know 17 existed. <laughs> the secret, <laughs> the secret <laughs> mission. Yeah, the forbidden mission. Yeah, there was so. 18 and 19, which didn't happen. There might be more than that even, but there were, there were planned oh. missions that they were like, eh, actually, this has we're gone good. pretty well, and <laughs> we keep doing this. We will learn more science, but we are increasing the odds of someone dying on a moon. And also, there wasn't that much public opinion supporting it. We all like it now, but back in the day, a lot of people were like, hey, we got other things to work on. Yeah. Well, were There's they bringing war. back helpful information from all the moon trips? Or? I mean, we learned a lot planning the, yeah. the moon trips. We learned a lot uh, in terms of, yeah. of science. The moon is sort of like this time capsule of what the Earth geologically consisted of mm-hmm. four and a half billion years ago. So it's definitely a scientific trove up there. But yeah, that's what Apollo is. It's the only time that people have ever gone to another world. And it was 50 years ago and we still haven't done it again. Over what's span of time did this happen? From 1969 to 1972 were the landings. That's pretty quick. wild that yeah. they got to the point where they could bring up like a buggy for them to drive around and stuff. I think that they always had sort of the weight capability of doing that. They didn't change the They were dipping their toes in the water at first, yeah. seeing what they could do. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Can we get them there at all? When they come back inside, will they die of moon dust? <laughs> yeah. Which was an open question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or will they bring <laughs> moon dust contaminants back to Earth and then kill all of us yes. with Everyone. alien bacteria? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No was the answer. Yeah, but. everything was fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've also got a sideshow thing coming out. It's like the first time we're doing something like this—a a long-form sort of documentary-style mm-hmm. episode where we talk about whether Apollo was a good idea. I, you know, probably can guess where we came out on that question, <laughs> but just asking it, I think, was really interesting. And uh, so, if you want to check out sideshow, we're trying something new, and we you sent, can check that out. We sent people to Alabama. We sent people all over the place. <laughs> yeah. So that is Apollo. Now it is time for. <laughs> Stefan has prepared three science facts for our education and enjoyment, but only one of those facts is real. The rest of us have to make our guesses, and if we get it right, we get a Hank Buck, and if we don't, then Stefan gets it. Stefan, take us into your mind of lies (laughs) and duplicity. Okay. So these are things that Apollo astronauts left on the moon. Ah. One is real, two are fake in some way. Fact number one. During Apollo 11... The cremated ashes of a NASA engineer who had tragically died in a car accident were deposited on the moon. Oh, Number I two. Like I would know that. <laughs> During Apollo 14, Alan Shepard left two golf balls and a makeshift golf club on the moon. After taking a couple swings, send me the balls flying for miles and miles and miles. Okay. Or number three. During Apollo 16, Charles Duke left a portrait of his family on the moon with a message on the back including his name and home planet. So one... 
Cremated Ashes of an Apollo Engineer, two, Alan Shepard's Golf Balls and Makeshift Golf Club, or three, Charles Duke's Family Portrait with the name and home planet on the back. <sighs> My gut's telling me the golf ball one is a trick somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that people hit golf balls on the moon. Right. Makes sense that that would be Alan Shepard. So the golf balls must still be there. They didn't go to collect them. No. But what about this so. makeshift golf club? Why not just bring a real golf club if right. you bring in golf balls? Yeah. I don't know. Where do you hide it? Do you have to hide it, though? I it guess. doesn't I weigh think, that much, I don't think. I think it weighs more than you'd want to bring on yeah, a mission. Yeah, you could bring a, like a... a I they got like a, a smaller, little pouch of A smaller stuff one. Do they have like a weight allowance? Like you could bring a certain amount of stuff so. that is your choosing. I think I read something like it was half a pound. What? Of stuff, which is not very much. So what like small really memorabilia, mean? like pictures yeah. or coins or things like okay. that. Wow, not, that's cruel. Yeah, I don't know. You're not going to let what me bring else are you going to bring? A golf club. <laughs> <laughs> a baseball bat <laughs> so that I can hit baseballs They just need to do a whole sports mission to the moon yeah. to see how fun they all are. I feel like that seems kind of likely because he, if he would have had to make shift his own golf club. Yeah. But wouldn't you have brought it home if you made a golf club on the moon? And maybe you just hit it yeah. with like a moon rock or something, like a long rock. <laughs> a really long No, he definitely had a golf rock. club. I've seen the pictures. Oh. Charles Duke seems like something you'd do. That's Everybody cute. should have done that. Yeah. It's less, than, a, less than half a pound. Mm-hmm. Got to do it, put it down upside down so it doesn't get bleached by the sun. Cremated ashes of an Apollo engineer, everybody. Seems like it could happen. That sounds like something that would come up when you Googled the Apollo 11 it al- mission. It though. also seems like lots of people die. And yeah. none of them got to go up. Yeah. So that's, they should have sent, should have gotten a bunch of people's ashes, mixed them all up, yeah. taken a can of that. <laughs> and it's like 50 or 60 people in there. <laughs> that's how they make hamburger. All right. I'm going to make Sam guess. I'm going to go with the picture. The picture. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with the picture as well. It was the picture. <laughs> I actually knew that. And I you did. did not say it. You played it really cool. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he left it face up. Because, well, in an interview, he said that he put it down, took a picture of it, and then never looked at it again. And so, but he was pretty sure that it would have been faded by now. Right. Yeah. The message on the back was this is the family of astronaut Charlie Duke from the planet Earth who landed on the moon on April 20, 1972. Oh, that's uh, nice. But now that there's no picture on it, it's right. kind of a weird message. Confusing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the aliens will be like, wow, these people are white. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the ashes thing happened in the 90s. Mm. So it wasn't Apollo related at all. But Eugene Schumacher was a planetary geologist who, with his wife and another astronomer, had co-discovered this comet that impacted Jupiter. Apparently that was televised. I didn't know they televised mm, like this. comet yeah. impacts, but mm-hmm. that was the first time that we saw things impact uh, oh, it was like other live, objects. Like yeah, yeah. Basically live footage of it happening. Cool. Yeah. But he, had, he was involved in Apollo astronaut training. And like wanted to go to the moon himself, but had a disease that disqualified him. Mm. So when he died in a car accident in 1997, they took some of his ashes and put it on the lunar prospector Hmm. and launched that, which eventually crashed into the moon. So he eventually made it. (laughs) (laughs) Crashed into the moon on purpose. Yes, after the mission was done. Tell me about this golf club that misled Sari. Thanks. So the golf club part was the lie. Like, he did not leave the golf club. The golf balls are still there. They know roughly where they are. But the golf club he brought back, and that's now in a golf museum somewhere. And it was a makeshift golf club? Yeah, so a lot of people think that this was, like, 
He smuggled it on mm-hmm. because I think it was a half pound. I think you're right about that. So the handle of the golf club is like part of a tool that they were already taking because mm-hmm. that was the heavier part. And he had a custom like head made for the uh-huh. end so that it would attach to the to that like pole. He apparently also like got permission for this. Like right. they were like, yeah. no, let's not do that. But then he was like, yeah. look, if anything goes wrong, like I won't embarrass the agency. I won't do it. Like. And eventually, like, he was very persistent about it. And then they, they were like, yeah, okay. okay Seems like something a bunch of dudes in the 70s would be into. <laughs> yeah, anyway. totally. Yeah. Golf yeah. on the moon. Yeah. Next up, it's time for a short break. And then, the fact off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Factor who's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. I don't like it. (laughs) Life just goes and goes, and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do. And one of those things is a very important thing called eating dinner. To eat dinner, one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then buy the stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to the stuff. You have to heat the stuff and put it in water. And then afterwards, you have to take the things that you heated it in and they're gross and you have to make them clean again. Meanwhile, life is still happening. That all oh, all oh, that's building up around you. Oh, this is like, terrifying. I'm so <laughs> I never want to cook again. <laughs> You're right, factor ad. I don't. I don't want to have this happen. This is unacceptable. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, parentheses, all the time, uh, you just don't have the time or the energy for meal planning on top of everything else going on in your life. So thankfully, Factor is here to help. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon come mealtime. You can get chef-crafted meals that are better for you and better tasting than takeout delivered right to your door, ready to heat and ready to eat. No prep, no mess, no sink full of dishes, no stress. We're kicking stress out the door in 2024, and I certainly hope that's true for me. <laughs> Heck yeah, Factor. Kick my stress. Right out the door. <laughs> I'm going to get a chest freezer just for these meals. <laughs> oh, you're going to need one because they have over 35 meals to choose from. Flexible ordering options, add-ons, smoothies. Factor offers all sorts of fast, simple solutions when you're too busy to cook. Banish your stress. Even if it's just for like one hour while you're eating dinner, head to factormeals.com slash tangents50 and use code tangents50 to get 50% off. That's code tangents50 at factormeals.com slash tangents50 to get 50% off. We're back. Hank Buck total. Sarah, you've got nothing. Sam, you got one. Stephanie, you got one. And I'm in the lead with two. Now it's time for the fact off. Two panelists bring science facts to present to the others in an attempt to blow our minds. The presentees each have a Hank Buck to award the fact that we like the most. And this week, it is Sam versus Sari. We're going to go by the person who most recently bought some space-related memorabilia. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I just did. Oh, you, you just did? did? Uh-huh. What did you buy? Uh it's like a it's like a long poster of the Apollo program mm. that I found in a print shop in LA. Wow. So I think that counts oh, nice. probably. That does that seems like it counts. Mm-hmm. Have you bought anything since 
sat Sunday? No, I don't know the last space memorabilia thing I've bought. So I guess that means that Sam's going to go first. Yeah, I'm a bigger space fan, I guess. All right, give us your facts, all boy. Right. A fairly important element of the Apollo 11 mission, and like all the Apollo missions, was the ability for astronauts and mission control to be able to talk to each other for the entirety of the trip, both when they were on the moon, but maybe even more importantly, when they were leaving the Earth and coming back to the Earth. Mm -hmm. Both near Earth and deep space communication have their own sets of like considerations and problems. When you're far from Earth, you have a direct path to more antennas and like dishes that pick up your stuff. Mm -hmm. But the signal's weaker, so you need really big ones to pick it up. Okay. Is that right? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> okay. When you're close to Earth, you can't see as many antennas mm -hmm. at once, but your signal's better, so you need like lots of little ones. Mm. Um, NASA had a system to track and communicate with near-Earth manned missions from all the previous programs they did, and they had something set up to track deep space stuff, but they had to kind of like make changes to their near-Earth program with deep space satellites to make Apollo work because it was a little bit of deep space, a little bit of close-up. Mostly what they did was build a lot of the huge dishes to talk to them, and then they built tons of little antennas and they built even more of them where the splashdown was going to happen because mm -hmm. that was where they were going to be closest obviously so the first of these dedicated communication stations was built in guam in 1966 uh, it was set up for near-earth communication and it would be the last antenna capable of communicating with apollo 11 before they landed mm. fast forward to the night of july 23rd 1969 which was just a couple hours before apollo was going to splash down mm -hmm. the morning of july 24th so Charles Force was the director of the Guam tracking station, which was the last one they'd be able to communicate with. And he had a big problem because a bearing in the antenna had seized up and communication was basically impossible once oh. they got close enough. So to properly fix it, they would have had to take the whole antenna apart and put it all back together. Mm -hmm. And by then they would have be landed or dead or whatever would happen. But he did have an idea, which was to grease the bearing that made it turn. But the problem was that the hole to get to the bearing was too tiny for all of the guys who worked there to reach their arm in. But luckily, he had a 10-year-old child <laughs> <laughs> named Greg Force, or G-Force. <laughs> and he called him up at 10 o'clock at night, and he had him driven over to the base. They greased up his arm, and he reached in the little hole in this big, dangerous piece of machinery. <laughs> And he greased up the bearing, and he made the whole thing work again. And they landed safely, which they might have done anyway. But they landed safely, and then he got to shake Neil Armstrong's hand, and he gave him a little note that said, thanks for helping with the Apollo mission, Greg. Was his hand still greasy? I was going <laughs> to Yeah. <laughs> I think this was like a, a couple of years give later. Him, right? Give him a wet willy with yeah. his greased up hand. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, Neil? Uh, I love it. Yeah, so a little boy saved the day. I'm glad yeah. that his arm is safe. <laughs> yeah, they've got little boy-sized holes into their antennas, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and how lucky that it was his own son because you yeah. can't just put a, a call for a boy at 10 p.m. at night. <laughs> we need I a need boy. a boy. <laughs> I need a small human. I, I bet Greg's arm would fit in there. Yeah. Yeah. You think Greg's arm would fit in there? He called his, yeah, called his wife and had her measure Greg's arm. <laughs> like, hmm. How big around is it? I feel this way about modern car engine bays. Like, they're mm -hmm. so small and tight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't reach anything. No. But I was looking at a picture of the oxygen generation system on the ISS and like it's all designed so that everything is like very boxy there's like a lot of room so like it looks like you can just take off a couple screws mm -hmm. it's like that's how it should be done it's not the prettiest but it's functional. But you right. don't need a little boy to You don't yeah. need a little boy. Yeah. If I wanted to put like new RAM in my laptop 
I could do that by buying a new laptop. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah. You need yeah. a really little boy to reach into your laptop. <laughs> <laughs> Through the USB port. Yeah, yeah, just I need Ant-Man to shrink down with some RAM. And then like, shoop. Okay, good fact, Sam. Okay. There's a nonverbal cue to start going. <laughs> <laughs> so spacesuits have to be really, really carefully made to keep astronauts safe. They have to be pressurized and have a tight seal to keep in oxygen, resist extreme temperatures, protect against UV radiation, be tough but flexible enough so that they can do things. And so when I picture spacesuits being manufactured, I imagine like high-tech machining and proprietary polymers and some sort of like complicated NASA facility where mm-hmm. they're doing all this mm-hmm. in secret. Yep. But for the Apollo 11 mission, the spacesuits worn on the moon were custom made for the astronauts using a lot of the same materials as bras, diaper covers, and girdles, and they were handcrafted by seamstresses with more sewing, gluing, and rubber dipping precision than luxury clothing on giant custom sewing machines where each foot pedal push did just one stitch through somewhere between 17 to 21 layers of fabric. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah, and so they had like hundreds and hundreds of meters. giant needles? They had, I think they had small needles, but big machines Hmm. to like fit all those layers of fabric in there. Like Sam, really a giant needle is just a stick. Hey, <laughs> but it's pointy. Giant for a needle is still pretty small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they need small needles because I think the NASA specifications were one sixty-fourth mm. of an inch oh, of precision. Couldn't make too big a hole in it. Yeah, couldn't yeah. make too big of yeah. a hole. Couldn't like go off seam too much mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. everything needed to be sealed so oh, precisely. Man. These spacesuits were called the AL-7, A for Apollo, 7 for the generation. So they were like six before that, and L for the International Latex Corporation who made the suits. Um, And ILC was mostly known for Playtex underwear and stuff, but there was a part of the company that submitted bids for industry and government contracts of Hmm. flight suits and things like that. This happened over lots of years, and there were bid processes, and there was work with other military suppliers to the Apollo missions, uh, spacesuits, and it was all very fraught, and the International Latex Corporation was dismissed a lot, and they were fired once, and it almost didn't happen, like their involvement was almost completely nixed, until there was a spacesuit competition in July 1965, where they competed against two other agencies and won, mostly because of the strong, bendy joints that they developed ah. called convolutes mm-hmm. for mobility because a lot of the other spacesuits submitted were really boxy right. um, and couldn't let the astronauts move mm. or like fit within the lunar module mm-hmm. model. Got to wear that thing inside. Yeah. And also put it like, on. In, you can't put it on outside. <laughs> oh, I never even thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> you got to like bend over and pick up rocks and do yeah. all that with a tight seal. So, yeah, I just thought it was cool that a lot of the reason the Apollo 11 astronauts were safe, like bouncing around on the moon was because of experts seamstresses who are so good at their jobs um, and doing like traditionally very feminine work but on a superhuman level like more than any other clothing process that has ever been that also sort of makes me think of the women who wove all the coating yeah Mm -hmm. because it was like individual copper wires that they had to weave together to like hard code all the like software for apollo core rope memory the little old ladies they knit they knitted software. They knitted yeah. I feel like I'm going with Sari. This is a better anecdote. Mm-hmm. You are, Sam? Greg wasn't really doing science, though. <laughs> he just had a greasy arm. So, yeah, Sari seems like sort of a big a big endeavor. And also, like, with the communications. It's just, like, all of the things that had to happen that weren't, like, big space rockets. Yeah. You also have to build a bunch, like, a whole communication network, and you have to figure out how to make spacesuits that you can walk around on the moon with. And Almost just... everything that happened wasn't the big space rocket, Yeah, basically. mostly the big space mm-hmm. rocket was 
We'd already, we know how to do that. Yeah. I would think once you got to the point of little old ladies knitting stuff for you, you'd be like, maybe we should wait a few years until we know how to do this. But <laughs> I guess nope. it was an important step. Well, you can listen to our new episode of SciShow. That talk about the little old ladies? We don't, but we talk about how there's some logic to the idea that maybe if we'd put this back a few years, it would have been easier. Mm-hmm. But there's also some logic to say, like, maybe if we had waited, there wouldn't have been a right. political will to do it. And we'd still be sitting here never having been to the moon. Was the political will all Soviet? Largely, it was proving that America and capitalism were better than the Soviet Union and communism. Stefan, did you award your point? I have to give a point. I like the seamstresses. I think Greg deserves a point. Yeah. To to Sam. Sam. Thank you, Greg. And Stefan. (laughs) (laughs) Is Greg still alive? Yes, I believe he is still alive. He wanted to be an astronaut, but he was colorblind, so he couldn't be one. So now it's time for Ask the Science Couch, where we ask listener questions to our couch of finely honed scientific minds. At SPath73 asks, How alone was Michael Collins while Armstrong and Aldrin were on the surface of the moon? Mm. Did he ever lose communication with Houston? Ooh, I don't know the answer to that question, but generally asking how alone was anyone is just like, I don't know, man. How alone are we all? Locked in our bodies, incapable of ever exiting them, occupying the physical space. But But arguably, he was in the most alone position anyone has ever been in. He had the least amount of people next to him than anybody else ever had. But he did have those two people that were on the moon. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But everybody else had more people nearer to them in yeah. the whole rest of the every other human right. being. For sure. Do you th- think he was still within five feet of a spider? <laughs> <laughs> I bet that not. Apply? I bet all the spiders got scrubbed out. Oh, no. <laughs> they should have sent him up with like questionnaires. They did like post interviews where they're like, what mm. did you do when you were completely alone? Yeah. But like when I'm alone in my room, it's basically the same. As <laughs> <laughs> orbiting around the moon. Yeah. Alone is alone. Isolated. You can't be more or less That's alone. Mm-hmm. He didn't really have that many days to think about it either, I guess. Less than well, a day. Armstrong and Aldrin spent 21 hours, 36 minute, oh, minutes on the lunar surface. Okay. And so he only spent less than a day huh. completely alone in the command module. But was he ever completely out of communication with Houston? I actually don't know. I feel like he must have been. Like mm-hmm. It didn't have a system for relaying the data. Did he orbit the way that he could always see the Earth? Or did he orbit the way that he was going behind the moon? Behind the moon. He's behind the moon? moon? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for about 47 to 48 minutes of each orbit, he was behind enough of behind the moon that he couldn't have any radio contact with Earth Hmm. or anyone else. Hmm. Um, And so there was a chunk of time. And I think someone did the math based on like the 21 hours, 36 minutes. He was alone Mm -hmm. in the command module. An estimate is that he made 18 orbits while mm-hmm. that. So like 18 times for about a little less than an hour. He was hmm. completely out of contact with anyone else. Did he have any statements on his aloneness? He says contradictory statements about his aloneness. Ooh. That sounded really sassy, but... <laughs> <laughs> he he didn't... can't keep his story straight. It's been 50 years. <laughs> he remembers things differently. Now. Yes. So like the very big Michael Collins quote is that I am alone now, truly alone, and absolutely isolated from any known life. I am it. 
If a count were taken, the score would be 3 billion plus 2 over on the other side of the moon and 1 plus God knows what's on this side. Very, very <laughs> dramatic. Pretty good. Very yeah. angsty, very dramatic. <laughs> well, I am the most lonely man ever. Uh-huh. <laughs> Was that a written line? Did they script um, that He must have written that down. Yeah, nobody says that. Maybe he thought that's what nobody could hear when he was just talking to himself. Just muttering to himself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But a July 15th, 2009, so 10 years ago, feature on NASA had new statements from him. Okay. And... This quote was, far from feeling lonely or abandoned, I felt very much a part of what is taking place on the lunar surface. I know I would be a liar or a fool if I said that I have the best of the three Apollo 11 seats, but I can say with truth and equanimity that I'm perfectly satisfied with the one that I have. And those things aren't necessarily contradictory. Well, and also the question was, circling the lonely moon by yourself, the loneliest person in the universe, weren't you lonely? <laughs> Three lonely. <laughs> Answer, no. No. I wasn't lonely. That's good. I have two questions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Would you be mad if you didn't get to step on the moon if you were up there? No. I think I might be a little bit. I think I'd be mad if I was an Apollo 13 astronaut and I thought I was going yeah. to and didn't. Yeah. I would be, I might be mad when I found out on the day when they gave the assignments and they were like, oh, yeah. you know, you're not, but I'm like, when you're up there. That's true. I think in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'd be so mad. But thinking about my actual personality, like if I find out I have to go to the, the pool, I'm like, ooh, dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. You have so like, to go to the pool. Yeah, yeah. You know, so some people are going to the pool. I'm like, all right, I guess I'll go to the pool. So <laughs> the deep end. I don't know if I'll make it. Yeah. So I don't know. You'd be mad. I think I would be. I think I'd. I think I'm the opposite of Stefan, where I think I wouldn't be mad. Where it's like, oh, I'm used to behind the scenes stuff. Like uh-huh. I, I like write for videos. I don't do anything on camera. Yeah. But if it comes to going to the moon, I think I'd be really like the competitive fire or like yeah. something yeah. in me would mm. spark up, and I'd be like, no, I want this put my foot on, on that him. rock. Yeah, you just like hit Neil Armstrong in the head <laughs> yeah. one morning and you're like, it looks like he's going to have to stay up here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or like talk someone else into it. Be like, you know, command module pilot, higher rank. You yeah. got to do all these checks, make sure we can get back to Earth. Are you a Slytherin? Yes. Hell yeah, me too. That's why we'd be mad. Wow, we got like three Slytherins on this podcast. Are you one too? Oh, oh man. My That's a bombshell. Do people know that? I mean, look. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's my second question. More science-tific. <laughs> More science-tific. <laughs> How do they keep them warm up there? Do they just have a bunch of heaters? Yeah, heaters, man. Well, first, in the daytime on the lunar surface, it's hot. Right. Like the sun's hitting you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you got to cool people off. Yes, the bigger challenge is cooling systems and spacesuits. So is the thing on their back for that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like okay. an AC unit, basically. Interesting. And then the capsule just had, like, heaters and air conditioning, yeah. too? Yeah, the space station has to deal with that a lot. Where it's mm. just like it's sudden, it's in the cold and then it's in the hot and it's like blazing hot and blazing yeah. cold. That's a huge amount of energy too, right? How, what, are the, what are they powering that? Is that solar powered? Solar power, okay. yeah. Yeah, a lot of the materials that they create to launch into space. So like the the spacesuits that I talked about, they had to develop a new material to go on the outside where it's like Teflon coated fiberglass to withstand mm-hmm. thousands mm. of degrees Fahrenheit right. oh, worth of temperature. And that is the kind of design that goes into a lot of material science that goes into space, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. It's right. like, how do you create really, really resistant materials that won't melt or burn yeah. up or, or <laughs> things like that in these yeah. extreme fluctuations? So the people who are making 
diaper covers were best for that, (laughs) apparently. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It turns out you need some industrial strength stuff to keep it all in there. Keep everything sealed up tight. (laughs) Right. If you want to ask the Science Couch your question, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we will tweet out topics for each upcoming episode every week. Thank you to at Tagalong572, at ArtemisMyths, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions this week. Hank Buck, final scores. Sari and Stefan are tied for last with one. And Hank and Sam are tied for first with two. Hooray. <laughs> if you want to see what we're up to on SciShow, head over to youtube.com slash SciShow where we have our big long form documentary kind of thing going up soon where you can learn all about Apollo and what we did and why we did it and whether it was a good idea at youtube.com slash SciShow. If you like this podcast, it's easy to help us out. You can leave us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show and other people see that we have a good podcast and then they will also listen to it and then they'll tell their friends and then someday we will take over the world (laughs) or just the moon also we're always on the lookout for new episode ideas and sam had an idea so if you go and leave us a review and you put your topic idea in there we will put it into consideration for an episode so write your ideas in your reviews everybody (laughs) cheese would be a great one somebody can have that idea for free second you can tweet out your favorite moment from this episode i love it when people do that and finally if you want to show your love for scishow tangents Tell Tell people people about about us. Thank you for joining us. I have been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Stefan Chin. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is produced by Complexly and the amazing team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who also edits a lot of these episodes along with Hiroko Matsushima. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. Our social media organizer is Victoria Bongiorno. And we couldn't make any of this stuff without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. So in the episode about satellites, we talked about how astronauts left poop on the moon. Mm-hmm. And there are 96 bags of poop up there, they think. They oh, estimate yeah. 96 bags of poop. There might be more. Uh, in recent years, scientists have been wondering about the contents of those bags and specifically oh. if the microbes inside of them could either still be alive or lived for a long time after they were deposited mm, yeah. on the moon. So the odds that this happened aren't really that great due to temperature variations, the possibility that the bags didn't retain the moisture from the poop, and like the constant bombardment by solar rays. But even if they lived for a little while, we might be able to go back, get them, and look at them and see what natural selection looks like mm. in a lunar environment. Oh my gosh. I love this. Yeah. I want to send another mission to the moon just to get poop. Yeah, so do a lot of like NASA scientists want to do the same thing. They want to go get... I'm surprised they didn't get one in any of the later missions. Yeah. They're Did they? close together. I was going to oh, ask. Yeah. You couldn't drive over there, pick up some, <laughs> some Neil Armstrong's <laughs> poop. <laughs> so come home, auction it off. Yeah. I got a bag of Neil Armstrong's poop. <laughs> <laughs>